0: discussions around crypto, like when you can set up tokenomics so it's automatically deflationary, that can often drive price in a very weird way. Wine and spirits are deflationary because people like to drink the stuff. like They're not making any more of it.
1: You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, joined by Billy from sunny San Francisco. You nailed it. Although
3: (laughs) it feels like San Francisco, we just had that blizzard of a century down here in Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. Snow in Hollywood. So we do have weather to talk about, actually.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I saw that and saw pictures in Paso. I guess like they got it really heavy. Um, And I saw Ridge post a, a picture as well.
3: Yeah, like Montebello
2: <laughs> Vineyard, it was like several inches.
3: Yeah, I heard somebody describe it on the radio today as novel for Northern California, but epic or extreme for Southern California. Yeah, there are like the mountains nearby. The snow level came really low down so I can see a lot of snow walking around and then not at my house, but like up on the hills. And then like the ski resorts got six feet of snow wild or like nearly
2: if this isn't a bullish indicator for washington state and english sparkling i don't know what is that you guys are getting snow and we haven't had snow yet this year in Baltimore. (laughs) yeah (laughs) and that we're still in extreme drought so yeah crazy (laughs) yeah but the drought has ended here at vent we have another (laughs) 11 collections qualified now and so we've already made announcement that we have our margot collection going live today as of the launch of this podcast in just a couple hours. I don't know if our listeners jump on at 5am when the podcast goes live, but we do have that Margot collection live on the platform now and we'll launch today. So that's an excellent opportunity, obviously, for people to get some interest in a vertical from Mar- Margot, which is a really interesting value proposition when we launch, especially Bordeaux and Burgundy wines in this kind of vertical format, because on the sell side, later on when we go to potentially liquidate it's a really interesting proposition for a collector that want to have an instant collection of Margot or we've done Lafitte in the past as well in this vertical format. So definitely an exciting offering and one we expect to have a lot of demand for again.
3: Yeah, it's a perfect addition if you want to just start collecting all of the Bordeaux first growths. We've had the Lafitte and mm-hmm. some Mouton specifics. So it's cool just to highlight Margot and especially because the wine in Margot, they're known as the lighter style. It's like a different style of Bordeaux, even though they're all similar compared to the other first growth. So some of the years that maybe one region or one producer got like a 98, they got a hundred and 99. So it's a cool little balancing act. So perfect addition.
2: Yeah. And like I said, adding 11 new collections based on SEC qualification or a new batch that we just received. And so I believe that brings us to 15 offerings. 14 or 15 total offerings still in the pipeline. So plenty of new assets coming to the platform over the coming weeks, both wine and whiskey, scotch and Japanese wines from France and also the new world outside of France and plenty champagne. of opportunities and champagne as well. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I've been talking actually to a lot of investors who've mentioned the kind of booming champagne market. So it seems to be something that's transcended our little world and like also gotten out into broader Maybe like financial markets and alternative investor space. So unless people are really just following us very closely, which I hope is the case, but seems that champagne is being talked about in bars around the country.
3: And the people, I think, are probably seeing it in the prices that they're paying for the actual champagne that's available sure. to some of the main labels are getting pricier or just not in stock. That happened a lot during the pandemic.
2: Yeah, for sure. Did you have any other notes on Margot? And if you wanted to share anything else on that, obviously our investors can, our listeners can see more details as well as the thesis that Billy works hard on and the rest of our team on the platform.
3: Yeah, this might have, I can't remember where we switched off. This might have been one of the theses that our newest member of the team who's been here now for six months almost, David wrote. So it might not be me anymore. But yeah, no, I think it's just a lot of top scores. It's vertical. I think one one interesting note you'll see is it's a straight vertical from, well, I'm pulling it up now, 2020 down through 2015. But in between 2010 or after 2015, basically earlier, what we ended up doing is rather than going pure vertical, we ended up just picking the top scores. or wines that scored really well or were highly sought after. So you'll see 2010 and nine and five and 2000. So we basically picked consecutive vertical and then we basically pick what are the top performing years outside of the most recent six or whatever that is so it's like a a really curated approach to a vertical as well
2: yeah and if you want if you are a fan of margot and you wanted a collection of margot from the 21st century this is the seems like the selection of assets of the past 23 years 22 years or whatever Oh yeah, um, and the other own, so.
3: yeah, and the other note is this was sourced directly from Negotiant partners in Bordeaux, who got it directly from the chateau. So mm-hmm. wine's never left Bordeaux. It was purchased direct as we can in terms of pricing. So it's pristine, pristine condition. It's awesome. That's cool. Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah. So come to our platform, check out that offering. Obviously, more coming. So plenty of opportunities to get diversified over the coming weeks. Certainly, reach out if there are any questions. But. On to our interview for today, we announced back in the fall and obviously have spoken on some other podcasts towards the end of 2022 that we raised our seed round, a round of seed funding back in the fall five million dollar round. And we actually have another one of our venture capital partners on the podcast today, Carlton CJ Fowler, who's the managing partner at Goat Rodeo, who is a generous partner for us in this round of funding and also a really strategic partner, I think, just like outside of the capital that we got from them. They're actually in the alcohol beverage space, have certainly a number of portfolio companies in food and beverage, and I think open up a lot of opportunities for us to network and partner. As we expand our footprint in just the alcohol landscape in the U.S., navigating some of the issues there and helping to get a Vint marketplace off the ground as well. So certainly they're going to provide a lot of help to us over time as we do that. And CJ provides a lot of great perspectives on our side of the market.
3: Yeah, just building on that, he is number one, just like a really a brilliant guy in kind of the alcohol space, like, like Brady was saying. But also Goat Rodeo, they focus on... They, they do have a lot of investments in alcohol related projects, but then they also have in fintech investment focus as well. Yeah. So we are literally like the optimal investment opportunity for them. And they really enjoyed what Vint was able to bring together. And since we really more, we are a fintech company more so than a wine company. A wine um, company. Yeah. So it was perfect for them, but no, it was a fascinating conversation. He got to work. He did a bunch of things, but he worked at E&J Gallo for a while. And I think it was Mm -hmm. Gallo that he got to work closely with, but he was basically fast tracked to the top strategy team at E&J Gallo. He was working directly with the top brass there and helping develop strategies for acquisition, for selling their wines. And for those who don't know, a lot of the brands on most grocery store shelves, like I don't want to say 30%, but there's a really high percentage that are E&J Gallo. So he was basically helping drive strategic decisions for different wines from almost the get-go from for years before striking out more on his own and, and helping develop more brands and help other companies get off the ground. So just a really smart businessman in, in the alcohol space, as well as he worked in tech and stuff before as well. So it's like a kind of a, a perfect combo for Vince. So I think it's great conversation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And he definitely, like the quality of CJ and of his firm definitely highlights the quality of all the partners I think that we were able to bring on in this last round. And so It was excellent talking to him. hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Here is CJ Fowler. Hey, CJ, thanks for joining us today.
0: Happy to be here, Brady. Billy, nice to meet you as well.
2: Yeah, it's exciting to have our second VC on the pod. We had Matt Murphy from Montage, and now we have CJ from Goat Rodeo. Man, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got here, and some of your interest in vent too along the way as we get into it. But why don't you tell us how you started and how you got to this place?
0: Sure thing. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Matt Murphy. He's a very smart guy. So Vince is lucky to have him on the cap table. I am not as smart as Matt Murphy, but <laughs> maybe have a little bit more of an eclectic background. That like we were chatting before the show. Like, I don't know what makes up the perfect VC background, but mine is weird. Like I, I've done everything from work for the Department of Homeland Security to... Build hotels and live in the Cayman Islands. I think the part that's probably most germane to the investment in vent is after graduate school. Actually, I'll back up a little bit. During graduate school, I had the opportunity to intern at E. J. Gallo, and it was a really interesting proposition because I knew I had a job locked up at management consulting. I was going to go do the standard like work at Bain for a while thing. So I was like, hey, wouldn't it be fun to go work at E. J. Gallo and work in wine for a summer? And while I was there, I ended up getting to know Ernest Gallo, obviously the the current Ernest Gallo, not the founder of E&J Gallo. And that was just a revelation. He's, to this day, the smartest person I've ever worked with in wine and spirits. So he's, an, he's a certified genius. And you could even tell all the way back then that he had a different view for what he was going to do with the company that he would ultimately help. And, he, and he's the CEO currently. So when when they offered me a role there, at first I said, no, thank you. I just didn't really imagine enjoying being like an associate brand manager on barefoot. It just wasn't my path. And they said, no, actually what we'd like you to do is report directly into Ernest Gallo. And eventually ended up running a team on new brand development. We had a really big focus on the spirit side because again, Gallo, largest winery in the world. I don't think people realize how big it is, but one out of every three or four bottles in the US of wine is a Gallo bottle, whether you know it or not. And they're just giants in that field, which means they're, incredibly ingrained in distribution and retail and category captainships etc so it made sense that because they had so many fixed cost investments that they deserved to be big players and spirits um now deserve and achieve are two different things and that's really where i just give a ton of credit to both Ernest and the entire organization there because it's incredibly kind of culture and character rich but Had the opportunity to take a step back and just think about what made brands successful, understand the capabilities of that organization, and try and merge the two. And we did a really good job. And when I say we, a lot of people, success should have many fathers, but that team put out high noon. That team put out a lot of the stuff that is just taking names and kicking ass for Gala right now. And last I check, Gala is now the fourth largest spirits provider in the U.S. now too. Number one in line, number four in spirits. And High Noon is now officially the largest spirit by volume in the U.S. market. And that's just a couple of years after its launch. Learn from the best in a very idiosyncratic manner that didn't have a public master as far as the markets and having to report out according to learning so they could take a very long view. So, I, I give a lot of credit to both Ernest specifically and that organization in general for where I am now. And I guess after that, I'm sorry to go so long, guys, but I, after that, I left, that was around 2017, 2018. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I did some consulting for a while for many of the majors, all very quietly and all very NBA'd up, so I won't go into too deep, but built worked on building brands for them as well as doing some stuff for for Coke and Pepsi. And then I realized that I am temperamentally ill-suited for client service, which is like a really nice way of saying I kept firing all of our clients because sometimes they would have stupid, in my opinion, stupid requests. And my partner, James, obviously was concerned about that because that was supposed to be our life. And then I suggested that perhaps instead of giving advice and then an invoice for said advice, incentives would be better aligned if we gave advice, and then a check to go execute on that advice. So we raised fund one in 2019. That was a proof of concept. Can't believe that LP has actually believed in us. Remain grateful to this. And then it snowballed or snowballed from there. Spitballing would be gross. And the funds kept on getting larger. We now have about $50 million under management, which is small for BC, but swings a big stick when you focus on alcohol and beverage in general as much as we do. And here we are today on the event podcast, because that was one of the coolest things I've seen in a while.
3: Wow. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach because most of the people go through and if they work at E&J, to your point, they either come up connected inherently to one brand or one sector. It's not really that you get that kind of access to either earnest or have that like broad scope to help develop on a more macro strategy scale.
0: Oh, that's yeah. Really interesting. I'm just completely cutting in line. Like, you should have to work yeah. at a company the gala size for 10 years before you run innovation. Didn't cut in line. And you should have to be an analyst and then an associate and then a principal for years before your partner in, in a VC fund didn't cut in line. But I was also too old to do that. And so this was the only option in. And don't think that doesn't mean I've made a lot of mistakes because I'm constantly learning things that like someone who was an analyst and then an associate and then a principal would have just learned on the job. So that, that doesn't mean it was the right way. It just is my way.
2: Yeah, what's the? uh, You haven't made too many investments outside of beverage and alcohol, but what do you suppose are the most unique things about participating in this niche versus maybe someone a SaaS or some kind of just like tech VC? What's unique about the niche that you're in?
0: The first thing I'd say is Vince, while it presumably sells wine and spirit, is actually a fintech. I'd say a third a third of our investments are in things that we consider a broad bucket of technology. While I am not a technology investor. I have enough experience in selling widgets to know where the, there are things that can be fixed. So, I, I'll tell you, I, I am as attracted to vent for the future ability to bring the in Premier system to Napa and Sonoma or the ability to create liquidity among amongst the import system than I am for securitizing wine and spirits. Because, and so a lot of what we do on the, on what we call our tech pillar, which is now a third of the size of the fund is, where are problems that we have seen for long-term periods, whether it's in a government-mandated three-tiered system or not, like where we have investments in things that apply machine learning to making distributor routes more more efficient. We have investments in, in things that help grab first, second, and third-party data and help all these companies that d- during that D2C Cambrian explosion that happened in 2020 and 2021. Now they've all figured out that it's better to ship pallets than it is to ship boxes and they all want to be on shelf and they don't know how. So we, we I, as we go forward, I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being half the fund, but to your specific question, Brady, like investing in wine and spirits, it's helpful to have a background in it because it's a very insular system. It is in the worst term of the word in the old boys club. And that's something obviously that we're trying to change with some of the founders that we back, but at least we do have a membership card in that club for better or for worse. And that helps us navigate a lot of the pitfalls there and helps us help the portfolio companies navigate it.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think there there's so many things that are wrong. I'm going to do it a little bit more about like the traditional alcohol system, which is one of the reasons why Nick and Patrick's vision enticed me to join as well, even when they didn't really have anything or were qualified yet. One quick question. I had to Google what a goat rodeo was, and then I should have guessed because it's like herding cats, I guess is a similar saying, but... How did you guys land on that slash it's an awesome name? So
0: there are two answers to that. And I'll tell you the official answer, which is, well, we like to work with early stage startups. There's an awful lot of chaos there. When there is something special about a company that tends to be one or two things that you can see that might be able to scale all the way through to, to exit velocity. And, and the rest is chaos. It's like, like, could have easily just called it the thrashing duck capital because like that old saying a swan or a duck is calm above the water and below it's just absolute chaos with their legs <laughs> it's the same thing with startups and you guys are well aware of this is things up here maybe smooth on the outside and even in the most successful it's chaos it's a goat rodeo the the real answer is one i grew up in a very small town and so goat rodeo was a phrase that i used a lot but two like i I care deeply about brand. I care deeply about positioning and communication through that because of my background in brand building. And every other VC fund either calls themselves something that sounds like it could easily be the next Toyota midsize SUV or (laughs) it's a piece of nature with a color, black stone. Black Rock, come on, guys, come on! I'm not, I wasn't going to call us Green Moss Capital and go, uh, calling yourself something like Goat Rodeo makes you ask that exact question, which is, tell me why the name, and that, that's what a, that's what a good name does in brand. And our brand just happens to not be a CPG thing; it happens to be invested in CPG.
2: The uh, oh, when I saw you guys come in. On the cap table and Nick was talking about y'all, I was excited that you guys were so focused in this space because like you said, all the different opportunities that we have coming down the line to, even as we build our brand to expand outside of just securitization, which will always be the focus of our business, but so many opportunities in this space. What kind of stood out to you about the long-term vision? I think you might've already started to mention a little bit of it, but what stood out about the long-term opportunities with Vint that maybe makes them stand out? among other portfolio companies.
0: The meticulous nature of Nick specifically is, in in many ways, can almost hide, I think, the, the raw simplicity of the idea, which is that bells and whistles aside, this is an excellent asset class. And I think Nick saw a very important consumer insight, which in this case, your consumers are almost exclusively, through time- especially in early stages, going to be high net worths, family offices, and eventually institutions. And those people don't want to own things. They want to own pieces of paper that say they own things. And We, we can put this in touch. I can't tell you how many people I've explained to invent because I live in a weird bubble here in San Francisco and be like, oh, well, when's it going to go on the blockchain? And I just have to sigh and say, it'll <laughs> go on the blockchain when family offices demand for it to be on the blockchain. But right now the SEC is the blockchain. And Nick's ability to navigate that Successfully and in a repeatable process was extremely attractive. And his, and his understanding of who his consumer was. Now, there's a lot of work to go out and try and find those people where they are. That's the whole process of company building, but he had a core insight that he understood how they wanted it and what they want. And then I think that doesn't require necessarily a background in wine and spirits to understand. What does require a background in wine and spirits to understand is that like in wine and spirits, there are just a couple banks that matter. In in the Valley, I'm looking at the Valley. It's just right up that way. Like Silicon Valley Bank banks 85% of Sonoma and Napa. So knowing that there's going to be an opportunity to work with them to potentially bring additional securitization Tools, whether or not that is in the final form of imprimatur like France does it, like almost doesn't matter. There's $200 billion of wine that needs to be securitized in one way, shape, or form because there's working capital locked in those two valleys. And I just think that Nick's understanding of that process allows him to see a vision that, that helping free that capital will not only help all the small wineries. It'll help the big ones, and it'll certainly help vent. And there are markets that I think might end up being orders of magnitude larger than the securitization of the more higher end names and the LiveX-based the LiveX stuff. And same for, same for this whole idea, again, of where is working capital law? If you have a background in wine spirits, you know that companies like Shah Ross, companies like Apicca, these major behemoths of American wine importation that, that service names that we know are bankable. Like we know that certain levels of French and Italian imports and to some degree, some South Americans and some Australians, those invoices are good as gold. And Shah Ross is Southern. That's good as gold. So getting in there and unlocking that working capital in a way that no one else is doing is fascinating. And that's why at some point you should have, I've introduced Nick to the head of Southern's Venture Arm, you should definitely have her on at some point as well. Um, But that's to, to your question of, hey, how does your background help you understand this? I think a lot of folks can understand that Wine and Spirit should be an asset class. And that's great. And hopefully that drives a very large market. I think we spend a lot more time when we're thinking about vent and trying to help Nick, thinking about those other two things that you need a background in to understand the players.
2: Is it more attractive or potentially riskier on, on your side that we're the first in this space here in the U.S.? Maybe globally, <laughs> I'm not sure. but
0: I think it's it's neither first or second or 10th I would have picked the one that demonstrated a very good understanding of how to work hand-in-hand with the SEC because it doesn't matter which of these products end up popping up, they all need to be papered. And then that paper needs to turn into a platform that has good UX, UI. And step one is papering, and that's, and that's I think, what Nick has clearly proven he's, is able to do. He's also proven that there's consumer demand for it. It's not that I'm indifferent to that, but many people could have consumed – consumer demand and there are some competitors you guys have that have some consumer demand. I don't care because I don't think that they're approaching the market the correct way.
3: Yeah, I like that saying too like approaching it the right way because it was interesting. I originally came on because Nick and Patrick had reached out to me to write some blogs because I had done some wine writing. And then once they explained their concept, it was like what you were saying. By the time they were done, I was like, I will write these blogs. but Can I also invest in the company? This was (laughs) a long time ago. But I was like, I'd only worked in Wine and Spirits for five years. And I was like, you were seeing these problems that I've railed against for a while. And you actually have some solutions. I thought it was fascinating. So I definitely agree on that front. From your broader kind of brand building side of things, do you see like the direct to consumer in Kind of value of certain wine brands continuing to drive the wine awareness that will lead to more investment in something like ours our product, or do you think some of these lower tier wines devalue our asset class in some people's minds
0: I think that I think that vent is fortunate that it will be able to you know build quite a bit of its success on the idea of brand. I think in finance and especially when you're dealing with like high net worth and family office maybe a little bit less institutional you know the 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 psychological aspect of what you're working with is almost more important than the actual numbers and facts you can put on the board. Like this idea that okay no we're primarily looking at first growth bordeaux these burgundy houses these italians these these champagnes, these whiskeys, I you're able to to basically piggyback on on brand building exercises that lasted for more than two, sometimes three centuries. So yeah. I, I think it's terrific that exists because it, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy at its core. <laughs> like people drink these things. Like the, going back to the sometimes nonsense discussions around crypto, like. When you can set up tokenomics so it's automatically deflationary, that can often drive price in a very weird way. Wine and spirits are deflationary because people like to drink the stuff. Like, like they're not making any more of it. And, like, for example, I've got some stuff in my cellar that, like, I am constantly having to go through an exercise of not drinking too soon because it looks delicious. And, A, I know it's not ready. And, B, I know that I could probably sell it for a lot more than I bought it for. And that, that urge is timeless and will always create value in this asset class. And specifically that are like some of the stories I've heard from Psalms over the years of like people who worked in like Maxime's in the in the 80s when folks with Japanese businessmen would come in and order like pre-war Latour vintages and also order a Coke. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and there's all, that person's always going to exist and they're always going to eat into the stocks and that's always going to drive value.
3: Yeah, I think I I reference this on the podcast all the time, but the story of wine by Hugh Johnson is, it basically goes back like 5,000 years and people talking about certain vintages that just drove, people coveted certain wines always throughout time for like literally millennia. So I think you're right. I think it's an inherent, almost human nature thing that won't so, go away.
0: Like to answer your specific question, do I think that there will be alpha and, ooh, technically, it's funny. I just sent an email to someone about, Pape, I'm probably butchering the name, but Pape Clement is right next to Hope Brion. I put Pape Clements in my cellar as fast as I can because they're, they cost $100 a bottle and, and Hope Brion costs $540 a bottle. They're literally right next to each other and they often have the exact same scores. <laughs> so is there alpha there? Probably. But do I think from a customer acquisition standpoint, it's a lot easier to get people to buy a collection of Hope Brion? Absolutely. And that's and like not losing the forest for the trees and just understanding that these brands exist and always will, I think we'll, we'll serve it well rather than trying to create alpha somewhere else where it might not, especially in a nascent asset class exists immediately.
3: F- fun fact, the, the Pope Clement, who he was one of the driving factors in bringing the seat of the papacy over to Avignon. He was a French guy who actually had been based in like Bordeaux. He's like the Bishop. And is yeah. like, some people say he liked French wine so much better that he brought it over so he could get his Bordeaux and his well, La Valley wine. It's it's like
0: it's the first time <laughs> that I picked up a bottle, I thought it was merchandised wrong because I was like, hey, here's the keys. And I was like, this is definitely not a Chateau de pop. So what's <laughs> going on here? Because those are the only bottles that get to have the Pope's keys. And But you are correct. Yeah. yeah. So I guess w- what I was also asking, it's
3: interesting because on that, that one end, brand is driving things. But I was asking, I guess, for a sense of the American... Wine consumers a little, a little further behind, like the average American wine consumer. And what they're seeing is a lot of these mass market brands. And I was thinking, does the quality of those mass market wines lead, like, the broader market to look at our asset class as something that may not be as valuable as maybe a European consumer would inherently understand?
0: I think similar to fashion and even automobiles, and, and a lot of things where there's as much a science as an art, time tends to matter on brands. There's not going to be an American company that passes LVMH anytime soon. And I think that, and you, I'll turn the question back around on you. It seems to me like the Colt, the, the Colt Napa collections sell very well on the platform. And just, just I mean, it's not like a bottle of Screaming Eagle is ever going to hit the, the, the shelves in a grocery store. It's all spoken for the second it goes in the bottle. So I think the American market can continue to evolve. But I also think that and this is going to allow some subjectivity into it, which is my own, just like my own palate, on average, at least what I've seen anecdotally, is the more involved one becomes in wine, the less attracted one becomes to the extremely extracted and heavy fruit forward, heavy alcohol basis of Napa, unless you're trying to demonstrate something extrinsically. So it just in general, most wine, wine aficionados that I know go through a process where they learn about it, probably go Napa first, then discover parts of Sonoma, and then ultimately become primarily Italian French drinkers, simply because their palate moves there. I, I don't think it's so much that the consumer nature of the American market in wine is blocking the elevation of those vintages as much as there's just so much of history and wine making style and brand woven into that, that Napa's was just put Napa's done pretty well for only doing it for less than a hundred years. Oh, yeah. to really answer your question. We need to be asking someone in 2300,
3: not 2020. But I guess I was trying to see like, how do I convince somebody who thinks wine is only like in America that thinks like this $10 bottle of wine that they drink is like what we're investing in. I guess is what I was getting at. It's more like, how do I get that person to invest if they have the money? But I guess most people have a general sense. They've heard of at least fancy champagne and stuff. They have a concept that wine can be valuable and they know that what they're drinking isn't. I guess that's what I was thinking is like, how can we move them to view wine as an asset class and kind of develop it further rather than just a everyday consumable?
0: I think that begs like a substantially deeper discussion around the distribution of investment knowledge. I would argue that convincing that person is maybe impossible with the resources that Vint has, but convincing that person's registered investment advisor at some point that it is an acceptable investment is a much more targetable and achievable goal.
2: Yeah, that's an issue. It's an issue that we not only experience, but the company that does what we do with luxury watches or handbags or any other luxury item that the majority of middle-class folks just think, oh, that's just stuff that rich people blow money on versus those are yeah. assets that appreciate and owning physical things is thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably a broad issue of skepticism about those things and self-assuredness about maybe like public equities or some yeah. of those more traditional investment vehicles. Yeah.
0: I think you're talking about forces that can often take a decade or more and we have a pretty clear path of what of what they've been before. You need platforms to exist that make it accessible and you guys are working as hard as you can on that and then after that you need time and media to, to convince people that it's an asset class worth going after. And also some form of expert voice. If this were a podcast about pharmaceuticals, we'd be talking about how you do use doctors as a dissemination platform. But because this is wine and it's an investment, getting getting Morgan Stanley private wealth on board is important. Get, get, getting Charles Schwab five years after that with the registered investment advisors that they talk to will eventually be even more important for the longer tail, but it's a process.
2: Yeah, and I read on your bio on the Get Radio site that you spend a lot of probably more energy than you'd like to being upset about the three tiered system, like most of us. What are the What are the main effects of our current system of distributing wine and spirits around the country into consumers? What are the main effects of that? You think on the yeah, market I mean, broadly for consumers
0: and maybe for our? business? I mean, there's two competing ideas that I'm able to hold in my mind at any given time, like the. Over time, the fact that the middle tier, being the distribution, has largely consolidated has made the system antagonistic to new brands. Now, that's also one of the reasons that new brands, especially in alcohol, get such eye-popping acquisition numbers based on the multiple on revenues because you want an antagonistic system, and therefore the presumption is when you move into someone who is – someone acquires you who is not being antagonized by said system, the growth will continue. And we've seen that time and time again. The flip side is if you look at the European market, for the most part, which is the other place that, at least for the Western market, and you know, the, like, we have a whole different podcast on how the Chinese market for both wine and spirits is developing, but like the, f- the fact that they don't have Tide House has actually made their innovation engine worse. The fact, to explain to your listeners, Tide House could mean that like a supplier could own the brand and maybe the bar that it's served in and there also tends to be, and as a function of that there tends to be big conglomerates of on-premise on-premise comp- points of distribution in europe whereas and this is something that i learned from Ernest, the fragmentation that has happened at least in the u.s market in the retail aspect whereas as is, is helpful for innovation the fact that you can start a brand and walk into a bunch of independent retailers in a state that might be heavy on independence is a good thing. It means you might be able to get your, your new beer, your new wine, or your own spirit on a couple shelves and get some feedback. Some states like California, extremely chain heavy. You as a new person cannot go get that. You need a distributor to help you get that. You need a lot of money. So I think on the one hand, it's a cartel and it's a cartel that is primarily in the service of the middle tier. And that it manufactures profits that otherwise would go into a consumer surplus and a supplier surplus. Like, and that for Southern to have its cut, you had to lose money, and Gallo had to lose money. Now, I'm sure that reasonable minds can differ on that, but that's that's generally what happens when you have regulatory capture. I think that over time that'll probably get it'll probably get moved away since its primary reason for existing was effective tax collection. And last time I checked, Amazon's pretty good at. Collecting taxes on everything that I buy. So I'm not too concerned over time, but it, it'll just take longer than anybody thinks to change because there's a lot of lobbying dollars sloshing around to keep the system exactly how it is.
3: Can you touch on how you think our model can help with that, breaking that a little bit with our importation and potential sales?
0: I think that's a, like, I know what you're asking. And very honestly, the fact that this system exists is a good thing for you. The fact that Shaw Ross is massive is a good thing for Vent because Vent has less players to go in and try and implement an idea of factoring invoices and unlocking working capital. So you'll be able to help the most small wineries the quickest because the three-tiered system exists. Then over time, hopefully that makes more suppliers strong and not need distributors and have more choice whether they go to distributors which will naturally refragment the market, which will naturally give you more distributors to go and importers to go work with. Like you, you can hopefully be somewhat of a counter cycle for good because working capital is such an important aspect, especially in wine, when you are literally putting things in organic barrels and waiting for the final, for the spirits even more. But being honest, then should be thankful that the cartel exists because it, it gives you, someone to go negotiate with. Agreed.
2: Are you uh, a little bit to like your own interests in wine and spirits? Are you more of a wine guy or maybe whiskey guy? I think you maybe said in the beginning, you were more involved with spirits or you were-
0: professionally. I've always been involved in spirits personally. I, I, am, I don't get me wrong. I love a good scotch. I love there's some bourbons that I care for, but I'm much more a wine drinker.
2: Oh, nice. You said that the palate usually moves, yeah, across the pond. Is that
0: right for you, or it is? Yeah. With the there, there's certainly some producers in the US that I love. Ridge. There there's some of things that I, I do quite love. But for me, Burgundy's white or red, are very high on my list. Um, and I'm slowly trying to teach myself more and more about Italian wine. It's a wonderfully fragmented system that seems to adhere to neither grape nor terroir (laughs) as far as it's a nomenclature and taxonomy, but it's fun to learn and it's fun to drink. And like I, whenever people ask me for wine recommendations from like very pricey stuff, if if you've got 20 to $50 to spend on a bottle of wine, you are not going to do better than just walking into a decent wine store and paying $30. It's just, you're going to get better wine for $30 because the Apple wine is, it's very highly marketed. Like, I can tell you as an investor, the number one thing that I look for in a wine brand to invest in is, can you be non-appellated, non-vintage and sell for 25 to 30 And that, that makes for a very good business. It doesn't necessarily make for a very good bottle of wine. And so you're much better served walking in and getting some unknown French producer that someone at K&L has decided is worth importing. It's probably going to be fucking delicious. I don't know if we can swear on this part podcast. I'm sorry. You can edit it out <laughs> if not. But it's going to be great. It's going to be the best $30 you've ever spent. Yeah. I,
3: I, we were having a non-vintage and non-appellated conversation the other day with a producer from the Central Coast. And then also we had the Penfolds team on it, which I think the Penfolds is an yeah. optimal example of both a good business and a high quality wine because like they're yeah. able to create that high quality every year, but yeah. aren't restricted.
0: But they can push the price up. The second best business in wine is if you can get above that that $50 price point and start to stretch... And you are constrained by then the size of your business is constrained by by production like that. But like the reason the reason that Prisoner is like a perfect example of what I would try and invest in as a wine brand is because it is virtually unconstrained by supply. That is why you want non-appellated, non-vintaged, and then you use a lot of wine-making techniques to create consistency. But the reason that people buy prisoner isn't because of the ones you know, now. A lot of stuff went into that. Like it just so happened that there was a tremendous amount of delicious zen available when prisoners started, and not enough people were introduced to zen. And the American palate is particularly well suited to something like zen. If you love big napa cabs, and I give you a zen with a really cool story, you're going to think that's pretty good. To this day, when I, I like every time I bring home wine for my parents for having like Thanksgiving or something, I always make sure to throw in like one dry creeks in for my dad and then he'll taste all the wines and be like i really love that one and i'm like i know because it's the zen and you're basically just getting like a fruit bomb but
3: where in so, italy have you been looking Why, um, are you going to more northern at first
0: yeah yeah i am I, although my wife if she could just be hooked up to an etna rosso IV, i think she would I'm with on that. <laughs> she's a really big fan of lively really minerally reds and that tends to come from the south i mean for, I, I love them too don't get me wrong but i tend to get a little bit more northern yeah, the way
3: that you were – if you're a Bordeaux fan and also Burgundy—I feel like Piedmont or Piedmont, like the, yep. some of the Barolos, is going to be right up your alley. Yeah,
0: yep. and again, they're just the quality you can get for dollar. There is just—it's
3: tremendous. Yeah.
2: It's fu- it's funny some of the feedback we get <clears throat> on collections here on the platform. I mentioned you like everyone—I love Burgundy. I think everyone loves Burgundy, but yeah. people have come to us and we had a white Burgundy collection in the spring of last year, and it took a little bit longer than some of the others around it to sell out. And I was speaking to investors about it, and they are like, yeah, I didn't even know that you could age white wine. And and it was actually one of, in my mind, was one of our better value propositions in terms of our investment thesis and sort of the circumstances around that vintage and like all of those kinds of things. It's just funny what catches on and what doesn't, I think, just based off of common knowledge and name recognition. And yeah, I didn't even know you could age white wine. So that's been fun, kind of having those conversations with folks.
0: Yeah, once once you have, for, in my opinion, once you have a really good white Burgundy, the idea of ever drinking another Napa shard becomes a bit of a terrifying proposition. <laughs> but uh, there, I mean, there are a lot of people who really dig malolactic fermentation, and so Napa's got that for them. Oh yeah, diacetyl. Out the wazoo.
3: But to the same point, if you do taste a really good white burgundy and you taste one with a little bit of age on it, then you also ask, like, why don't people age more white wines if they're made right? Because you don't want to drink one of those babies. Awesome. I was also going to say, looking forward in terms of, like, trends in 2023 or beyond, since you're so tapped into the kind of alcohol space, what are you looking for in the next year or five years that might be catching on?
0: The build in sparkling is continuing and if you if you talk to like there i run into folks sometimes that like don't fundamentally understand how trends build because they're if you think of trends as a wave they're going to be these little eddies and counter waves everyone's like oh a lot of the growth in sparkling is in lower and sparkling i'm like yeah but that's think of it as a customer acquisition funnel like if, if the top of the funnel matters and at the bottom of the funnel, people are going to, avenge, you know, some percentage of that top of the funnel is going to find their way to really beautiful age. And so I think that five years from now, if I were, this is not investment advice, <laughs> my, my lawyer won't me a caveat that, but I would I, like, like I'd be snapping up any, anything on the champagne side because I think that I read an article where I think we passed six like billion dollars in the worldwide champagne market. And I was like, that's almost comically low. It's gonna. I think we'll be we having this conversation in five years, saying we're about to pass the twenty billion mark. Because it's people's palates love carbonation, they love flavor, they love something that that is approachable. And when you start to move away from this, is only solitary celebrations a couple mm. times a year. People are going to start pairing it with food more. I just think that champagne is going to continue to be an unstoppable trend. Yeah, for as yeah, much yeah.
2: soda as we drank for so many years, you think that we can just easily convert that. Appetite for, like you said, carbonation too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The thing that I'm keeping my eye on is that the millennials have done everything late when you look at like actual like consumption trends. So I think the expectation is they may come to ultra premium and up wine a little bit later. They, they have been the driving force between ultra premium spirits. The boomers and Gen X, like, because they still have so much disposable income, they're a driver there. But if the millennials come to ultra premium wine late... I think they might come in a slightly different way. I think, I think like just an absolute adoration around in the US market of very extracted Napa cab and a very certain style of Napa shard. Those will always be major players because you can't have a category completely devolve over time. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see the growth in a lot of them within the wine that millennials show up to the party. If they don't, then you have to reach up and say, okay, interesting. Like we might have a much lower consumptive class and one of the biggest drivers of wine consumption in the world. And we'll just have to see. They've come late to everything else, buying their own houses, having their own kids, getting rid of their student debt. So I I suspect that they will come, but everybody needs to be watching that.
2: And then in in your personal wine drinking, are you snatching anything up besides sparkling or exploring new regions that you want to drink in 2023?
0: I would love to go... I'll answer that question on a trip that I'd love to take. I'd love to go do like a Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, maybe one other, and just like really explore the island wines. So I haven't I don't know Greek wines very well at all. I feel like that's a separate trip, but I'd love to go just do the some of the near near coastal stuff in those those three islands and really get my head around the wine, Which would allow my wife to get her hands on a bunch of Etna which would make her happy.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, there's with you. We we're actually considering a similar trip but Italy not Italy Sicily has so much in and of itself and then Sardinia and Corsica I think it's Corsica is more for like their Vermentino and they have it, the wines have mutated over the Sardinia has Cannona now which is just Grenache but it's also yeah. evolved like it's so cool to think that like there are literally wines that those cultures are centered around that we rarely see and we would think are weird but they're just like have crafted them over the course yeah. of like hundreds of years to make them special in the way they are 100%.
0: Uh-huh. i am way more... Like, I love Vermontino. I'm way more interested... <clears throat> after White Lotus, I, my guess is Sicily is going to have way too many people for a while. And, Unfortunately. Maybe and, they and, 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 and go spend my time in Corsica or Sardinia.
3: Yeah, I think Sardinia is probably... Or yeah, I don't know as much about Corsica, but I was thinking about Sardinia, too. I think that's probably the move. Although, I will say, the economy in Sicily did need a little bit of a boost. So, hopefully, it'll be a, a good boost. That makes sense. <clears throat> cool. Awesome. CJ... Really appreciate the time, both in
2: sharing, obviously, your insight about the industry and your experience, but also what drew you to Vint and what has you so excited as we are. So, yeah, I mean, I
0: think you guys are building a really cool product, a really cool service. And I've got very rosy expectations for you also. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much. We'll talk again
3: soon. All right. That was our interview with CJ Fowler. I hope you guys learned a little bit about the wine, alcohol, and brand building biz, as well as his point of view on fintechs and where we're going with that. And yes, today, as we mentioned, launching our Margot collection. It should launch at 12 noon Eastern. Go grab some shares. Hopefully you can grab some before they sell out this time. And otherwise, we'll be back with episode next week. Cheers.
1: To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular is amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.